The El Pilot's Plane Tales, RAF Form 414, Volume 15. The Royal Air Force's Pilot's Flying Logbook is a sturdy publication, cloth-bound in blue with gold printing on the cover, on the inside of which are the instructions for use. Para 1 Subpara A states that the book is an official document and is the property of Her Majesty's Government. Well, good luck trying to get this one back. I left you having rejoined my old squadron, the Fighting Cocks, and after being given a brand new navigator, Cool Hand Collie. What I hadn't mentioned was what the squadron had in store for me. Something I wasn't happy about, even though I should have expected it. After all, if you were the boss and read that your new pilot, an experienced Phantom Champ on his third tour and now with four years of advanced jet instruction under his belt, you would want to put him in an appropriate job. What better than the Deputy Squadron Qualified Flying Instructor? It therefore came as something of a surprise to him when I complained bitterly. Can't you help me? Well, do you have any idea of what you want to be? Yes, yes I have. What is it? A lion tamer! I had left the squadron and had been dragged kicking and screaming to the Central Flying School, despite ticking the box non-volunteer on my application form. I had suffered four years doing a job I didn't want whilst my friends and colleagues on the front line had fun in the weeds flying roaring fighter jets and even fought a war over the Falklands Islands. I, it seemed, had been branded a QFI, which meant I was destined to spend a lot of my time in the back seat of a dual control phantom on my squadron and on my next tour, even worse, doing a dead-end job as a QFI at the Phantom Conversion Unit. I requested an interview to put my case. Quite honestly, I didn't expect much sympathy. After all, the Air Force had invested a lot in my instructor training, but I had my ducks in a row when I suggested that four years as a QFI should be enough to amortise that, and it would be very useful in the role that I always wanted, that of a weapons instructor. Now, to all of you out there who think an instructor is just an instructor, in military aviation, the difference between a flying instructor and an RAF qualified weapons instructor, an RAAF fighter combat instructor, a USA fighter weapons school graduate, or one of the many other men and women who train fighter pilots how to fight, is like chalk and cheese. And I wanted to be a cheese, a big cheese. You might wonder why in that list I didn't mention the nine-week US Navy Top Gun course. Well, I just gave you the reason. The course to become a Navy Strike Fighter Tactics Instructor lasts nine weeks. All the others are full-time dedicated courses lasting six months. No offence, guys. I'm sure you mean well and are a quick study, but geez, your whole course is more than 60% shorter and your air combat phase runs for only three weeks. If only they could concoct a piece of Hollywood fiction to raise your profile a bit. Oh, wait. 
Anyway, enough of baiting the fish heads. I wanted to be amongst those honoured few who wore the RAF's red QY badge with the phantom spook carrying a sidewinder under one arm. I never imagined I would get the chance, and anyway, we were off to the distant land of Cocconelli and Kebabs to catch some beautiful autumn warmth and do gunnery, so Coolhand and I packed up and set off south to the wonderful island of Cyprus. As the stunning blue of the Mediterranean Sea passed beneath us, I pondered on my RAF career. If I were to pick a point of perfection, this would have been it. I was senior enough to be given the best of the flying jobs, but junior enough to carry very little responsibility. My experience gave me enough respect for my voice to be heard, but I didn't have to make any hard choices. All I had to worry about was flying and fun. What could be better? We set up shop in the now very familiar detachment headquarters, filled the fridges with Keogh beer and settled in for a month of shooting in the sun. After a bit of first night madness in Chris's kebab restaurant, Cool and I had a couple of shakedown trips to film the flag so that the QIs could authorise me to go live and to check the guns out by hosing off a few hundred rounds into the sea. It was a lovely job to dive down towards the ocean, make the master arm live and fire off several seconds worth of cannon shells into the waves. On pulling the trigger, an electric motor would start the Vulcan cannon spinning, and then it became self-sustaining, working from gas pressure. And if the six barrels tried to go past 6,000 rounds per minute, a brake would come on to check its speed, giving rise to a ghostly woo-woo-woo noise. It was something we rarely heard, since a normal firing burst was only half a second or so. Before long, I had a shoot of 44% and 28%, so I'd regained my Allied Command Europe ACE qualification and went into operational shoots that were a bit more demanding. Five shoots later, and we'd put enough holes in the banner to relax and enjoy ourselves, so now it was lazing in the sun, scuba diving, water skiing, and sitting around with cocktails. It was on one such easy-going evening that Coolhand showed his true colours. An unusual night out included brandy sours in the mess, followed by a fast black cab downtown for a meze, a traditional meal of 10 to 20 dishes, including such delights as tzatziki, talamasalata, hummus with flatbread, big bowls of rough-cut salad, Chef Talia, kebab, stuffed peppers, cleftico, slow-baked mutton, huge pork chops, grilled chicken and moussaka, to name just a few, all washed down with bottle after bottle of rough red cocconelli. These were feasts that left us all exhausted, all except Coolhand, my nav, the skinniest man there. His party trick was to pile all the leftovers from the table onto his plate until it was a huge mound of food. Holding his cutlery in his fists like the weapons of a samurai, he would take bets like Paul Newman in Cool Hand Luke. 
After demolishing this extra snack, he had a habit of lining up across from a colleague and challenging them to a drinking competition. He would fill both glasses to the brim and on the shout of meniscus would down his cockanelli in one and repeat the challenge. When his first opponent fell from his chair in a drunken stupor, he would move on to his next victim. This man was my perfect backsea companion and would go on to command the fighting cocks and do many other great things in the Royal Air Force. It was while the sun was blazing through the flight commander's office window that I was called in to be given some news. I gotta do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. Someone had fallen out of the next QY course, starting early the following year, in three months' time, and they needed a replacement pilot at short notice. Would I like to go? The grin on my face lasted for days and was hardly dented by the size of my hangovers. The two squadron QIs immediately took me under their wings and told me of all the horrors that awaited me and then set me to various unwanted tasks that they normally undertook during an armament practice camp but also let me sit in the back of the cramped and dingy cine rooms during the many film debriefs they performed during the detachment. I was given the task of constructing my own cine assessment tool used to measure the film image of the flag at the opening and closing of the firing burst to ensure that the safety margins of range and angle off were adhered to. For this I was given a copy of the Central Trials and Tactics Organisation QY Handbook and told to get on with it. Suddenly my visits to the bar began to tail off as I studied Section 1, Basic Maths, and began to refresh my 31-year-old brain with indices, logs, trigonometrical ratios, simultaneous and quadratic equations, resolution of vectors, equations of motion, dip and parallax, trajectory, shift and gravity. I skip radar theory and probability theory, gave turn equations a glancing blow and settled in to air-to-air sighting. Before long, I was quizzing the armourers on the phantom fuselage datum line, the harmonised gun depression line, the bullet ballistics, the firing velocity, and applying air density, range, target velocity and angle off to work out the lead for target motion. With that, I could add trajectory shift, dip, gravity drop, and angle of bank to get prediction angles. I took a look at the calculation of projection distance for the Spectro Mark III projector when using the F4's Telford Gunsight camera film, and before long I had a usable lump of cardboard covered in squiggly lines that worked well enough. When we got home from Cyprus, I gave the marvellous news to my darling wife, who rolled her eyes. We had been at Lucas for only six months, having moved from Wales and just got settled in. Now I was telling her that in three months we were facing another shift of several hundred miles, this time from Scotland to Coningsby in England. The course would last six months and would be followed by another posting to who knew where. The excitement of getting my dream shot was starting to fade a little, 
as the practical realisation of what she faced began to dawn on me. Once more, she was carrying our second child, the first having perished in an ectopic pregnancy, and if all went well this time, she would be giving birth in the middle of the course. I've spoken before about my wife's strength of character, and it showed through again as she smiled, squared her shoulders, and told me not to worry. She told me that she knew how hard the course would be, and that I should concentrate on getting through it. She would handle everything else. So it was that shortly after Christmas we packed up our house into yet another removals van, the cheapest of three quotes that we had obtained and submitted to accounts in station headquarters, and she pointed our old blue Renault 14 with one door so rusty I'd bolted it permanently shut, southwards, chased by me on the motorbike. I'd said goodbye to everyone on the squadron, and unlike my previous last flights, this one was all business, and a trip in the back seat of the two-sticker getting qualified as a backseat pilot in the Phantom with the squadron commander in the front. A few trips earlier, I'd been presented with one of my most treasured possessions, a thousand hours Phantom badge. Jilly was right about most things. The Phantom QI course was notoriously hard, and on most days I was going to be up and out of bed before her and rarely home before she climbed back under the duvet. The only difference at weekends was that we went to work in civvies. There were only five of us on the course, two pilots, two navs and a fighter controller, and the staff matched us one for one. For the pilots, there was a fair bit of backseat flying, and I was now at a Phantom FGR2 base, which had the RAF-equipped F4s as opposed to the ex-Navy ones I had flown back at Lucas. This meant getting to grips with an early-generation mechanical inertial navigation system. The INAS was like a thousand Swiss watches, packed into a suitcase, which the RAF regularly bashed with hammers to make them work. Its heart was a big mechanical gyro surrounded by accelerometers, which measured movement by turning cogs and wheels. In the same manner, waypoints were entered mechanically by disengaging pots, using a joystick to move latin-long counters around to the desired position, and then locking that in by pushing down and turning the pot to re-engage it. In addition, there were the radar controls that required two hands to work, a stick and throttles, except you couldn't engage reheat from the back seat. Not only did we have to fly intercepts from the back seat, we had to be able to fly an instrument approach based on the aircraft's radar mapping picture, both of which required at least four hands and eight pairs of eyes, which explains a lot. The standard of flying and instruction required was high. Plus, we were expected to know the aircraft's weapons system as if we were going to build it. Indeed, in the past, QIs were responsible for proposing modifications to the Phantom, such as the Pulfrey mod, a design by Al Pulfrey that allowed the nav to manually control the radar speed gate to prevent it from being decoyed by enemy countermeasures. 
As part of the course, we gave highly classified lectures and briefings on the aircraft's weapons system, and then went out and used it, firing AIM-7s and AIM-9s in novel and experimental ways, and then analysed the results. We often flew with the staff navigators in all aspects of air defence and had to coach them through intercepts and correct their errors in radar handling as if they were novices. We regularly took aircraft away and flew against other types, Sea Harriers and Hunters out of Yeovilton, Lightnings out of Bimbrook, Jaguars out of Coltishaw, and at times it seemed most of the United States Air Force. Every aspect of every flight was debriefed. Debriefs that were notoriously long and often went into the night, leaving scant hours to prepare for the next day's missions. We started work each day at 6am, picking up a met pack on the way in to brief everyone well before the rest of the station was awake. I was not far into the course when I was recalled from a Friday mission by the boss. I didn't know why until I landed, but I was soon packed off to the maternity unit at Boston, uh, the original one a few weeks early as things were unexpectedly happening. Our firstborn took his time to get going but then arrived in a rush and all of a sudden Jilly and I were parents and our world had been turned upside down. Luckily our mums were there to lend a hand and by the end of the weekend I was back hard at work. The arrival of our son was far from the only major event of the course, but to find out how I ended up in flames, you'll have to wait for the next instalment. Flying Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find out all about that at AirlinePilotGuy.com And if you enjoy Plain Tales as a standalone podcast, then you'd help us out if you could by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks for listening.